This is our third week in the body of the letter of 2 Thessalonians. The first chapter was introductory material, still very edifying, but introductory. Chapter 2, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, the authors, said, Now concerning, and they introduced this new subject of eschatology, which is a word we need to know. It means the study of last things. Eschatos means last, so eschatology. And I've been saying the, the best way you can think, if you hear eschatology, think end of the world, because that's what we're talking about. And this is week three of that, and we're doing these in very small sections, so they obviously are very dependent upon one another. But let me summarize where we've been so far. First week we saw the church was concerned that the day of the Lord had come. But Paul and the others explained to them that is not the case, because there were things that needed to happen, uh, or things that would definitely signify that the end had come that had not happened yet. And we broke down the, the order of that as the Bible teaches it. First comes the rapture, and then a seven-year judgment or tribulation, as it's called. Jesus returns at his second coming, and then we have a thousand-year kingdom. And not everybody lays it out that way, but that's the framework that we're following. So Paul was telling them, you're not in the tribulation yet. And number two, we saw, because the Antichrist had not come yet. And that's what we talked about last time. The Antichrist is a world political leader that the Bible prophesies is going to dominate the globe. He's going to demand worship of himself. And he's going to persecute God's people until Jesus returns. So those are pretty simple. There's a lot of details in there. But the short version is we believe that Jesus is coming back for his people. And that there will be judgment. And then he will return to set up his kingdom. And we also believe during that time there's going to be a world leader who's going to dominate called the Antichrist. Now this week, Paul is going to, is going to continue moving right along, explaining what is keeping the Antichrist from arising immediately. What's taken so long? Why has he not come already? And the answer to that is that someone or something, as we're going to discuss, is restraining that evil. That Satan is always trying to bring the world to an end, but God is restraining that. And we're going to see how he does that and specifically what the restrainer is, he's going to say. But there's also a great practical lesson for us here. We're talking about end of the world prophecy, but here's the practical lesson that you and I play a role in God's plan in restraining evil. And regardless of how you understand the eschatology of this passage, there's going to be some very important things that are true no matter what and I think will be very edifying for us. So let's read these three verses and we'll go through them Afterwards, but it's good to get the whole thing here because this is a very short section. Verse 6, And you know what is restraining him now. Him is the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist. And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Those are our verses for today. He had said already in verse 5, Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And he opens verse 6 by saying, And you know. So Paul is referring to previous teaching that they had given to them. So he refers to what they know and does not lay out exactly what they know, which is unfortunate for us because we do not know exactly what he said. And this has been the case throughout church history. Uh, St. Augustine said about this passage, he said, I frankly confess, I do not know what he means. 
Sometimes it's okay to look at the scripture and say, I don't know. Well, I think that we can come to some good conclusions, and I believe I understand what this passage means, but it's a good reminder that there needs to be a little bit of humility when we approach some of these things that are less certain, right? Salvation by grace through faith is certain. certain some of these eschatology matters. We, we believe what we believe, and we, I think we have good reasons for it, but at the same time, we want to be humble and understand that some of these things are mysterious, because the Bible uses that word an awful lot. So let's look at this. He says, the rise of the Antichrist... Satan's plan of world domination, everything we talked about last week, all of that is being restrained. So think of a dog on a leash, all right? Restrained. And he says, you know what is restraining him. And then in verse 7 it says, he who now restrains will do it until he is out of the way. So if we want to find out what exactly is this restraint, it calls it a what, which is impersonal, and it calls it a who, which is personal. So here's the question we want to ask ourselves. Who or what is the restrainer? And as in most issues of interpretation in the Bible, there are any number of ideas about who or what the restrainer is. The most popular one throughout church history, not a great option I don't think, but has been government. That government, civil authority is what is restraining the rise of the Antichrist. Angels is another option, that the Lord has commissioned his angels to hold back what Satan is trying to do. Paul or the other apostles were viewed as the restrainer, that their mission and their gospel was restraining what Satan could do. Another one that I thought was strange and never come across before was that Satan is the restrainer, that Satan is holding back the Antichrist until he's ready. I think that's rather an odd choice. I don't mind telling you that. Right away, I mentioned it before service to somebody, and they said, well, what about the passage where Jesus said that a house divided against itself cannot stand, and why would Satan fight against Satan? And I said, that's a good point. (laughs) So these are some of the ideas. Let's look at some of the details here. First of all, I want to clarify that he's not talking about multiple restrainers here. That's one thing that I did come across. People say, it could be any number of things. By saying what restrains and then who restrains, some people want to make a big deal out of the fact that one's impersonal and one's not. He's referring to to one thing. This is a singular issue that he's discussing. Both of those words are singular words. So this is not God's got all kinds of restrainers that are doing different work. Secondly, this is personal. Why would you refer to an impersonal thing as a who? He's saying what restrains, but then he says who restrains. That I think it makes much more sense to say that the who there is primary because you sometimes will refer to a personal thing impersonally, but you very rarely will refer to an impersonal thing personally. Number three, and this is the key one, whoever this restrainer is must be powerful enough to restrain Satan and the Antichrist. That's the job, right? That is the description. So whoever this is, they have to be able to stop Satan from dominating the world and raising up a world ruler who's going to force all people to worship him. So this is a spiritual force, I would say. I don't think there's anything that we could create that is going to stop Satan from doing what he wants to do. And number four, this is a key one. He is here now, but will be removed later. This is what he says. You know who is restraining him now. And verse seven, he who restrains will do so until he is out of the way. So the restrainer is at work now, but later will be, as Paul says, out of the way. So this is a singular thing. It's a personal thing. Must be powerful enough to do the job. Fourth, he's here now, but will be removed later. So knowing those things, let's evaluate some of these options. 
Government makes some sense. This was the church father's primary interpretation, but I think that they were men of their time in that sense because they were living at a time where the Roman emperor, Constantine, had become a Christian and had permitted the church to worship freely, and then his children would go on to actually mandate the Christian religion. So for them, it was the, the government that was preserving and endorsing the gospel and Christianity. So for them, they say, as long as Rome's around, then you know, the enemy can't do his thing. But then what happened? Rome fell. So now what? <laughs> so now what? I mean, Romans 13 does say that the civil authority is God's tool to restrain evil, talking about lawlessness, but it's not talking about this level of lawlessness, I don't think. Also, the Antichrist himself will be a government political figure. So that seems like an odd choice to me to say that it's the government. It also doesn't seem to have much place in this passage in context. So there's that. What about the apostles? Well, the apostles are all gone. So we say, well, it's their message. Okay, but that's not the same thing as the apostles. The apostles, they said, Paul himself was the restrainer. Well, then Paul died, and then what? <laughs> We're still here. So it couldn't have been Paul. I think Satan, as I said, is a, is a terrible option of the four. That's a nice hot take to you know, put on your blog, maybe, but it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Now, what about angels? I think that has, of those four, that's probably your best option. Daniel chapter 10 talks about the warfare between the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece and the prince of Israel. We see in Revelation chapter 20, there's a great angel that binds Satan with a chain and stuffs him in the bottomless pit for a thousand years. So the Lord does have angels that in his power are mighty enough to do that. But again, here's, here's my main thought about that. I think there's a simpler answer, but if that's the case that the early church had a doctrine of a restraining angel, we don't see that anywhere. And you would think that that kind of thing would be important enough to be mentioned elsewhere. So that's what you call an argument from silence. It's what it doesn't say than what it does say. It's not the strongest thing, but I think that you might have heard something about that somewhere. That the church had a, oh, you know what I'm talking about. It's that crazy angel I was telling you about. So that seems to be, uh, as we said in the uh, inductive Bible study class, that seems to be, answering a question that the text itself is not asking. So what's, what's the answer? I think the short answer is that the restrainer is God himself. Namely, so we're going we're gonna to go broad and then we're going we're gonna to reduce this down. That, that seems to make a lot of sense, doesn't it? God can restrain Satan. Namely, this is God the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit at work in the world. But here's the question we've got to ask. It says that the Holy Spirit will be removed. The Holy Spirit is omnipresent in God's world. How in the world... Can the Holy Spirit be removed? Well, here's where we narrow the focus a little bit more. This is the Holy Spirit's unique work through the church. How is the Holy Spirit primarily at work in the world today? Through the church. God empowered his people to go out into the world and to push back the darkness the kingdom of darkness, and to spread the gospel of the kingdom of God. So I'm just going to go ahead and give you the, the answer here, and we'll explain this in more detail as we go. Who is the restrainer? It is the Holy Spirit specifically at work in the church. Let me give you some verses that I think summarize this. Luke chapter 10, verses 18 through 20. All the disciples come back from their first evangelistic trip, and they were talking all about all the miracles they had done. They said, even the demons are subject to us. And we've got a song that we sing that comes from this passage. Jesus said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. 
Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. What about Matthew 16, verses 17 through 19? This is after Simon Peter. Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are God's Messiah. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Against Peter? Against that church I'm going to build. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. God has commissioned his church to bring the gospel out to the world in his power with authority to defeat the devil. Now listen, regardless of how you understand who the restrainer is in this passage, this is still true. I believe that the same thing is the only option I can see that accommodates this text and the rest of the Bible. If you're saying, well, what, what could possibly be restraining Satan that could later be removed? I think the New Testament gives us something that is restraining Satan that will one day be removed. And that's the Holy Spirit's work in the church. The Holy Spirit did not always work in the world the way he's doing right now. The Holy Spirit did not always indwell his people and empower them for ministry. That was a special thing. So when the Lord removes his church at the rapture, that unique special work that Joel prophesied and looked forward to will no longer be active. God is restraining the wicked one through the work of the church by his Holy Spirit. So that's our answer to that question. We know that God is restraining the Antichrist through the church. Satan would rise and bring up his Antichrist and dominate the whole world and set up an image in the temple today if he could. But God is restraining him through the work of the church by the Holy Spirit. Because look what Paul says. He says, Satan's mystery, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. The mysterious plan of Satan to dominate the world. Everything we talked about last week, to destroy the world, really. To raise himself up as a god to be worshipped. Everything we read about in Revelation and Daniel and everything else. He would do it today if he could. The mystery of lawlessness. The secret plans and plots of the enemy. There's also, and we're not going to get off on this, there is a slight possibility that that reference to a mystery is what you might call a mystery cult. A lot of this strange worship like cults at the time would call themselves the secret mysteries. And Paul and other guys write against those kinds of people. But it could be that Paul's not only saying that Satan has his plans, but that Satan has his people that are already at work actively trying to bring this about. Please don't push that too far. You can get into conspiracy theory territory very fast with that. Just know that it's a possibility, okay? He says his plan is already at work, but God has got him on a leash. And Satan's like, here we go. And God's like, not yet. All right, we're going to destroy the world. Not yet. We're going to kill all the Jews. No, you're not. Not yet. I'm still doing my thing. I think you see countless examples of this in the Bible. I'm going to give you four, but there's more than I'm sure you could think of, of God restraining Satan. And Job Chapters 1 and 2, Satan comes to God and says, that guy Job only serves you because he's rich and he's blessed. And God says, fine, you can take away everything that he has, but don't touch his body. Then Satan comes back and says, he'll serve you as long as he's still healthy. God says, fine, go out and smite him with sickness. And Satan does that, but he wasn't allowed to kill him. God very specifically set the parameters of what Satan was allowed to do. 
He's restrained. He has to ask permission to test God's people. In Genesis chapter 11, I think this is probably our best example. The people of the world came together. They didn't spread out like God told them to. They went to Shinar, which is Babylon, and they began to build a tower. Remember, they said, we'll build a tower. We'll make a name for ourselves, and we'll ascend to heaven. And God says, if every person on earth united together to do something like this, nothing would be able to stop them. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go down and mix up their languages. And they weren't able to continue and finish building the tower. God thwarted the world's attempt to have that one world, that idolatrous worship. God restrained them. In the book of Habakkuk, maybe you've felt this way before. The prophet Habakkuk comes to God and says, How long do I have to watch all this sin going on without you doing something about it? And God said, Don't worry. I'm raising up Babylon to come and destroy Jerusalem. And Habakkuk says, wait a minute, they're worse than we are. You can't do that. And God says, don't worry, I'm going to come for them too. It's God's way of explaining to Habakkuk, I put nations on a leash. They can go so far and no farther until I pull them back. It's also a great reminder to us that you can't just look at the other nations around the world and say, well, we're not as bad as them, so God will give us a pass. That is not the case. In Matthew 24, 22, Jesus says that, God will shorten the length of the tribulation so that all flesh does not get destroyed. So even when the Antichrist is active, God still got him on a leash. says, you can go as far as I say and no farther. So there's four cases. Job, Genesis, Habakkuk, the Olivet Discourse in Matthew. They all show Satan trying to harm God's people, trying to accomplish his plans to lead the nations to blaspheme, to dominate the world. But God restrains him. The mystery of lawlessness is already, you might say, always at work. We have seen, as I talked about last week, countless cases of little a antichrists, as John says. 1 John 2.18 says there have been many antichrists, but we're looking forward to the, capital A, antichrist. We talked about Gaius Caligula, the Roman emperor, and all the emperors were worshipped as gods. It was more a loyalty thing than anything else. But this guy said, you know what, I think I am a god after all. So take some idols of me and go put them in the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. And you read the story. This happened in 40 AD. His general knew this was a bad idea. because He knew that those Jews were not going to put up with that. But Caligula died in AD 41, and it never actually happened. We talked about Adolf Hitler. I mean, you want to talk about a little a antichrist, that was the guy. Raising up an empire, dominating nations, slaughtering the Jews. Would, have, would not have taken long for him to start mandating worship of himself, would it? But God put a stop to it. He restrained him. What about the rise of, of Islam? What about Muhammad? That, that's an example of an antichrist. It almost was an anti-Judaism if you look at the way it was set up, where this man rises up and says, I've heard from God, and turns out that the Christians are all wrong, and we're going we're gonna to rise up and have a new religion and a new empire. And it spread so rapidly around the globe, and it spread violently, and they were worshiping their, their prophet. And that, that, that is, little a, antichrist. It is anti-Christian, you might say, because they had a leader that they worshipped. They had a false system of worship, and they were destroying and dominating the world. But God restrained them, too. We saw that ISIS a few years ago. Remember how scared we all were? They're going to they're gonna reestablish the caliphate around the world, but God restrained them. They didn't. You could talk about the Soviet Union, same kind of thing. Big cult of personality, dominating the whole world, worshipping only the way they're allowed to, slaughtering Jews and Christians. We've seen this countless times throughout history. Go back. I mean, you can probably come up with more. Those were some popular ones I thought you guys would recognize. 
But that is what, what does this teach us? The mystery of lawlessness is always at work. Satan is always trying to get there. But Paul tells us here that God is restraining him. 2 Corinthians 4.4 calls Satan the God of this world. Little g, God of this world. Ephesians 2 verse 2 calls him the prince of the power of the air. Hear this. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So he's saying Satan is kind of like the God of this world. He's the one that people worship. And he is always working in the hearts of men to lead them to further and further disobedience. So we need a restrainer. Because the mystery of lawlessness, Satan's plan, is always working to raise up another Antichrist. 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. That's exactly what he says. But the good news is that God has Satan on a leash. We've seen throughout the Bible, he can go as far as God says and no farther. And God's plan is not going to be thwarted. One of these days, I'm going to break off this leash. And God goes, no, you're not. You, you can go as far as I say and no more. Now, what is God's primary strategy for restraining the evil one. We've already said, I believe it's the church. It's the Holy Spirit who's only one powerful enough, but he's given that power. He has empowered, endued with power, all these phrases that the New Testament uses, his church. Jesus Christ ascended to heaven and he sent the Holy Spirit so that there would be millions of little Christs around the world. Jesus said in John 14, you are going to do the works that I did, and you're going to do even greater works than I did, because I'm going to the Father, and when I'm there, I'm going to multiply myself. We're going to start with 120 of you in the upper room, and then we're going to multiply it to 3,000, and then we're going to multiply it to about 10,000, and then we're going to spread out all around the world, and there's going to be millions. Imagine if Jesus was duplicated around the world millions of times. That's what God has done. You don't think that would have an effect? I think it would have an effect. I think it has had an effect. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus put it this way. And this is interesting to me that this comes right after the Beatitudes when Jesus talked about being persecuted for his sake. You might say, why would I want to go through all that persecution and put up with that? Because he says in verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We are salt. What does salt do? It preserves and it gives flavor. But I love that preservative aspect of it. God's like, I've got you out there to be the salt of the earth, to keep things preserved for as long as we can, to give flavor. I like that. That's, I could preach just that. That when you start following Jesus, life gets its flavor back. John 10.10, 10, you have abundant life. You can enjoy the gifts of God without guilt and without fear. But we're a preservative. And light. Positively, light gives hope to people that God loves you and he sent his only son Jesus to die for you. But it's also the light of truth that John says that people hate and want to stamp out as much as possible. But he says, go out there and be salt and be light. The church is the preservative of the world, the restrainer of Satan. And this is not like we get together and we have some weird, like, magical prayer meeting. We're like, Lord, please hold back Satan. No, no, no. It's just by you doing what Christ has called you to do. When you are saved, when Christ saves you and forgives you and the Holy Spirit comes and fills you, it starts to clear your life out of sin and all the lies you've been believing that have been making you miserable. And you start to feel free. 
Galatians says that for freedom, Christ has set us free. So if you don't feel free in Christ Jesus, you're doing it wrong. Liberty, the Lord gives us. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. There is freedom. And that life starts to change. And the whole outlook starts to change. Maybe there was threat of suicide and great sin and evil, and that all starts to go away. And then that one life goes to your family. And now the people around you start to see you getting changed. And at first they don't like it because the light is being shown on them and exposing all their issues. But when you start loving them and showing grace to them and kindness to them and taking a stand for what's right around them, they come and they say, maybe there's something to this. And now they're saved. Now you've got, I don't know, four or five, six lives that have been transformed by the gospel. And now this family is living in this neighborhood and people interact with them. And they say, there's something about these people. And you go to work, and these, these six or seven people spread out to the workplace, and no, I'm not going to lie. No, I'm not going to cheat on my time card. We shouldn't be doing that. You know better. And there's that person at work that is maybe tough to deal with, and you're showing them grace and patience. And now that person gets transformed. And now everybody at your workplace goes, wait a minute, if that guy can be changed, there's something about this. And it starts to spread. And this is how the gospel works. Now you've got a community and a neighborhood and a city that are being changed. One kid can go into their high school and transform it by the gospel of Jesus. And then these smaller communities affect the larger community, and they go out and they spread just like the early church did. Whole nations have been transformed by the gospel. That's what salt and light is. That's God's strategy. Church is plan A, and there is no plan B. And we come together, and we're so smart, and we're so clever as a people, and I'm not putting us down, I'm being serious, we're smart, we're clever, we're very organized, we're very efficient, and we want to come together and say, isn't there a better way to do this? I mean, if the goal is to transform the culture, isn't there a better, faster, more effective, no, there's not. We've tried just about every one you can think of. Read your church history, and I'll remind you that the only thing is the gospel. You go out and you take back souls that Satan has stolen. That's why Ephesians 6.12 says that our true enemy is Satan. That's the bigger battle. I I love these verses here in Thessalonians because it reminds us that it's not just your life and, oh yeah, I know I need to go to church because it's the right thing to do. You are at the center of a cosmic struggle between heaven and hell for the souls of men. How do I fight that? You do all the things that Jesus told you to do. He said, well, I've only ever managed to change one mind. Okay, you've doubled your effectiveness then. Now there's two of them. All I ever did was raise four godly kids. Wonderful. You multiplied yourself several times there. Well, we've been doing this church for 10 years. We've only seen three people get saved. Three people that were going to hell that are now affecting their whole world around them. We we plant seeds. We sow. We water. We wait. And then God gives the increase. Your enemy is not those people. Y'all, when you get home and you watch the news, and you see all the crazy stuff going on, and people writing articles against Christians, don't get angry. Get angry that Satan has so blinded that person that they're publishing and marching and shouting against the very thing that could save their soul. Get on your knees and pray for them. Fast and pray for people. One crazy conversion can disrupt everything that Satan wants to do, can't it? Like Paul, for example. We're going to finally stamp out these Christians, and God goes, Apostle! New Testament. And Satan goes, okay, let's just chill with this persecution thing for a while and we'll figure it out. Don't don't underestimate what you can do with your one life. And sometimes God pulls out all the stops and he does a full press, a full offensive against the enemy where we blitz, you might say. And we call that revival. 
When God does what he does in little, small instances, you know, over time, God goes, how about we do a bunch of these all at once? How about we get tons of people saved at once? How about we transform tons of lives at once? And we do in three days what normally would have taken three years to accomplish. And that's why we're always hungry and praying for revival. Because God steps in and God just does it all. You, you stretch out the timeline of a church, I think any godly church, and you'll see healings and you'll see miracles. And you'll see amazing signs and dreams. That You know what? Over 20 years, we've seen a few of these things. What the Lord does in revival is he takes that timeline and goes... And they all happen at once. Like, this is amazing what's happening. God is reaping a harvest. That's how the Lord restrains. Revival swept Europe during the Reformation. There were godly people saying, how are we ever going to break apart the oppression of, of the church? And God goes, well, I got this old German dude. And he's really pig-headed about most things. So I'm going to take that pig-headedness and I'm going to aim it right at Rome. And we're going to break it into a million pieces and my people are going to get saved again. Revival swept England through the Methodist revival. People were getting saved and the church didn't know what to do with it. Revival swept America in the 1960s and 70s. The Jesus movement. The hippies were on the move. The communists were doing their thing. Everything was going so bad. What's going to happen? God goes, I'm going to take a bunch of these hippies. I'm going to make them pastors. Tragic in a way, but I I saw an interview with, she's older now, but she was some intellectual from... The, uh, the days of the hippie movement and the cultural revolution. And she goes, I don't know what happened. She said that we were moving on to the, the psychedelic dream was happening in the age of Aquarius, and then it all just fizzled and stopped. I don't know what happened. Like, I know what happened. The restrainer stepped in and said, nope. And also a whole bunch of people were disillusioned all at once that there is no joy and hope and salvation and love here. And the Lord said, you want peace and love? I got you peace and love. And here we are today. So you've got the small picture of you influencing your own children and your own family and you and your marriage. You know, oh, marriages are all falling apart. Well, yours doesn't have to because the gospel is at work. Raising your kids at that small ground level to nationally, God raises up a figure that leads millions to salvation. God restrains Satan, but he uses us to do it through the simple gospel by the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 through 21 is now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. Every revival daydream you've ever had, the Lord's like, stop thinking so small. (laughs) Far more abundantly than you could ever ask or think according to the power at work, where? Within us. Well, God's going to do what God's going to do and it's not our job. Uh, Yes, it is. The power at work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations the restrainer, the work of the Holy Spirit through the church. And listen, we pray for revival because we want to we harvest. Sometimes we look at it and we say, God, I think we may have, we maybe have gotten lapped a few times by the enemy. So we need you to kind of give us a boost and, and catch us up. We pray for revival, but you can have revival in your own heart today. God doesn't make you wait. God can transform any group of people who commit to prayer and commit to his word and commit to Letting go of other things. Well, I've prayed and nothing happened. Well, keep praying. God wants you to keep seeking and keep knocking and keep asking. Because he's got to draw you away from all that other distracting stuff. And then he'll fill you up. That's the restraint. And that restraint will go on until God is good and ready. He says, in his time. Just as how Jesus was revealed in the fullness of time. So God understands what the fullness of time will be for the end to come. And then it says, the restrainer will be removed. 
He who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. When will the restrainer be out of the way? This is the hard thing that I have with the post-tribulational rapture position. If this glorious, victorious, unstoppable church, against whom the gates of hell will never prevail, how can they go through seven years of calamitous defeat and destruction? Somebody maybe has an answer for that. I've not heard a good one. So I believe that when he says the restraint will be out of the way, this will happen at the rapture, which we believe will happen before that great destruction. And it makes some theological sense to me. This victorious church will be removed before God pours out his wrath on the world. And there will no longer be those indwelt, empowered, spirit-upon-them Christians walking around the world. Raises the question of what, what will it be like for those who come to salvation during the tribulation? Will they be filled with the Spirit in the same way we are? I don't have an answer to that question for you. But there will come a point when God has done all that he has foreordained for the church to do. The Ephesians 2.10 to-do list will be fully checked off. And then that's when we believe the rebellion that we talked about, the gathering together that Paul mentioned, will take place. There are several passages that let us know that God has a specific amount of work for the church to do. And that when it's over, the end will come. Romans 11.25 says, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So we'll talk about that more when we get to Romans. But he's saying, don't get too big for your britches, Gentiles. Thinking that God somehow loves you more than Israel and he's done with his chosen people. He says, no, no, no. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. The part I want to focus on there, there is a fullness of the Gentiles. I don't know what the number is and neither do you. But God has a fullness at which point, if you keep reading that passage, God is going to turn his attention back to the nation of Israel. Matthew 24, 14, Jesus said, This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Which is why I really like the idea of ministries trying to find out every unreached people group and get to work. Because we want to see Jesus. <laughs> it seems that God's work with his church... His judgment upon Israel, which I'm not going to dive into. We've talked about it a lot. They rejected their Messiah, and God said, fine, I'll do it without you. The kingdom has been delayed. Someday that work's going to be completed, and that's when their 70th week that Daniel talked about begins. This is probably what Peter meant in 2 Peter 3.12 when he said that you can hasten the coming of the day of God. How? I, the only thing I could guess is by getting some more people saved. How would you like to be the one to lead the last Christian to salvation before the rapture? He said, will you pray with me? And you run through the sinner's prayer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. And then the shout of the archangel and the trumpet blast, and both of you are caught up in the air to meet Jesus. Like, man, I should have done this a long time ago. <laughs> I think this is one of the clearest pictures we have of the pre-tribulation rapture in the Bible. That God's got work for the church to do, restraining and salt and light and holding back what Satan is doing. But then that restrainer will be out of the way. When? When we're gathered together. And that's when the man of lawlessness will be revealed. If it's not the church, the Holy Spirit working in the church, the question we have to ask is, well, what else then? What's going to be removed? When is that removal going to happen? I think this is the clearest way to understand this. But let's talk about this for a minute. This is less joyful. 
Everything that we have seen in history so far, the genocide and the war and the depravity, that has all been God restraining evil. The Holocaust was God restraining evil. The gulags under the Soviet Union was God's restraint of evil. The debauchery and the sick sin that goes on in some of the big cities in our country, that is God restraining evil. What's going to happen when the Lord stops restraining evil? When it's not going to be the whole world shocked and horrified by what that country is doing. It's not going to be most people going, how can they do things like that? It'll be in the tribulation, a day of unbridled sin and wickedness. And I think this, you might say, is the worst of the judgments that God is going to pour out on the world, is that he's going to stop intervening in their sin. This happens personally. We've seen this in people's lives. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 5, Paul told the church, Pray for that guy that he may be delivered over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that his soul may be saved. He says, there's this Christian in the church been committing all kinds of sexual immorality. He says, don't just put him out of the church. Pray for him that God removes his protection from him so that he gets a belly full of his sin until he's willing to repent. Romans chapter 1 describes this. I'm going to read verses 24 and 25, and then I'm going to skip and do 28. It says, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Why? Why would God give them up? Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. The Bible teaches us that people can push and push and push against God's restraint until God finally says, fine, have it your way. Have you ever seen this in somebody's life? where somebody is struggling with this issue, struggling with this thing, but they're not really fighting back, and then one day it seems like on a dime everything just gets worse. I've seen this often when people blow past a certain mile marker in their lives that it feels like all restraint has fallen away. Once they finally decide, you know what, I'm leaving my wife, I'm leaving my husband, I'm just going to go and, and do it my own way. Then it's not just that. There's a whole mess of sin that comes in. When people push past certain levels of addiction and then you see what happened. You were handling it and you were struggling with it, but now you're bound to it. And you've engaged in all these other horrible, horrific things that you never would have thought of before. It's like Pharaoh in the Old Testament. You've read it before. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. And what does it say ultimately? God hardened Pharaoh's heart. God said, if that's the way you want it, your decision is now locked in. Is it fair for God to do that? It would have been fair for God to do it the first time. When people push back on God for too long, he turns them loose to all manner of wickedness and debauchery. Now, imagine that on a global scale. No restraint. There is no voice of reason in the halls of government anymore. There is no evangelist on the street corner calling people to repentance. There is no voice of moral reason saying, we can't be doing these things Read through the books of Revelation and Daniel. It'll be days of violence and immorality and destruction and corruption. Because God is going to turn them loose. He's going to remove his restraining hand. Satan will finally have a free hand to do whatever he wants. The book of Revelation talks about God releasing the angels that were bound in the book of Genesis for breeding with human women. He's going to turn them loose again. It says that there are angels bound at the river Euphrates that have 
when God releases them, Armageddon comes almost immediately. God is going to be turning it all loose. He's going to open the jail cells of every wickedness he's ever bound up and said, out you go. Which is why when people say we're living in the tribulation now, it's like Paul says, no, 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 you don't understand. It's not going to be something that you disapprove of. And it's not going to be, well, we'll, we'll manage, we'll get through. And no, it says that the, it was given to the Antichrist authority to make war against the saints and to overcome them. But we know that Christ is going to return. One of the acts of God's restraint is to shorten those days. He'll shorten those days lest all flesh would be destroyed. Verse 8, it says, And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Oh, who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? Who could ever come against him? And then Jesus comes up and it says, The breath of his mouth. Strike them down with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of coming. Nobody's going to remember him. Nobody's going to remember his kingdom when Jesus sets up his kingdom. And the nations are not being destroyed, but they're being restored. And it says that the trees will grow back and the water that had been poisoned will be restored and the nations will live in harmony and righteousness will be enforced and the saints will be on the earth. Isaiah 11 verse 4 is probably where Paul got this phrase that he used. Isaiah 11 verse 4 says, With righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Jesus will win in the end. Satan doesn't even get the chance to try until God says so. And you read those stories in, or those passages in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Revelation where Jesus shows up and he's not got the purple sash from when you were in children's ministry with a lamb on his shoulders and the long flowing blonde hair that he always has. It says that he's got a robe dipped in blood. Now, it's his own blood, but there's also a passage in the prophets where it says, whose blood is that? He says, the enemies of my people. I've been treading the winepress of the wrath of God Almighty. Wickedness is going to finally be judged and destroyed. And it will be the salvation of Israel on that day. And the church, however you understand the rapture, by then will be gathered together with him and rule and reign with him for a thousand years. So this is a pretty straightforward breakdown, I think, however you understand the details. Satan is trying to raise up a world-dominating empire, specifically the one guy, the Antichrist. God is using the church as salt and light to restrain him. Someday the church is going to be taken to heaven in the rapture, and that evil will be unleashed. But after that, Jesus Christ will return and destroy that false empire. This tells us that we have work to do. We must be about the business of the church. Do you think that because we can point out what is wrong with the world that we somehow are excused of our responsibility to the world? It's not good for us just to spend all our time saying, look at them, they're wrong. And look at them, they're wicked. And how dare they say something like that? And look at all these other churches and they're not doing it right. We get together and we have this holy club where we pat each other on the, on the back and say, yes, we're so wonderful. We're the first church of the right on and, and God might as well just blow up the world for all we care because they're, they're hopeless and there's no hope for them. Is that a godly, Christ-like attitude? I, I don't want to be brought to heaven and my robe look all nice and you know everything is pr nice and pressed and 
my collar is starched and my hair is nicely coiffed and looks wonderful. I want to be coming into heaven and I've got armor on and it's battered and banged. I've got a broken arm over here and I've got like my helmets hanging off my head and there's blood streaming down my face and mud and dirt and I'm limping in. But I've got a big old mass of saved people coming behind me. I've been in the fight and now the fight's over and I've got lots of people that got saved. If Jesus has not come back, that means that there is still work for the church to do. And it is not to sit around and talk about how right we are. It is to get out there. This is not your Christian life, by the way. Coming to church is not your Christian life. This is to get you ready to go back out and live your Christian life. The pastor is like a quartermaster. My job is to give you the equipment you need to go out and do the ministry God has given to you. Ephesians 4 says that. That's what we pay you for, Tyler. No, it's not. You pay me to pray for you and to study the word and to help keep us on the right track so that I can talk to you and get you back out there. Because you have influence that nobody else has. You are salt and light in a place that no one else is. No one else is salt and light in your family but you. That guy at your workplace that everybody else has written off, who else is going to talk to him but you? Your kids, who are they going to listen to? They don't have anybody else to listen to. Well, they don't want to hear it from me. But if you're the only voice, you've got to keep talking like Jeremiah. You never know. Be praying for one another. Be spreading the gospel. Coming here and getting prayed up. Making sure you're filled with the Holy Spirit. You know the Bible tells you to do that, right? Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, that sort of seems strange to me. You better get over it being strange to you because that's the only way you are able to do what God has called you to do. Well, I'm really good at planning and all that stuff. Oh, great. Look, we love planners and we love strategies and we love plans, but... The Lord has said instead, how about you just come to me and let me give you the power to do what I want you to do. Your enemy is the evil one whose plan is already at work. And what's God's plan to counter that? It's you. It's you and me. We're plan A and there is no plan B. I hope that you see today, and we'll wrap up with this. You've got work to do. Your enemy is the wicked one. Therefore, if your work is to oppose the wicked one, you have the power and authority to oppose the wicked one. And we don't do this directly. Remember, we're not going to get together and have an anti-Satan prayer seance or something weird like that. Jude says that there were false teachers, and he says, you know that they're false teachers because they're not even afraid to start blabbing against Satan because they don't know what they're talking about. Because even Michael the archangel didn't do that. When Michael the archangel was fighting against Satan, what did he say? He said, Lord, (laughs) you handle this. You get him, Lord. You do the work that you've been called to do. You have authority in Christ Jesus. To tread on snakes and scorpions. Does that mean we're going to get a box of snakes and start passing them around in here? No, he's talking about spiritual hosts of wickedness. Oh no, there's a demon. And you have the name of Jesus Christ. You have the Holy Spirit's power within you. Do the work. Spread the gospel. Don't be afraid. Well, they might come at me. They're insulting me. They're talking bad about me. They say I'm going to lose my job if I do this. But you're the salt of the earth. You must be at work. Next week, we're going to talk about, we're going to talk about the deception that is going to come upon the world that's going to allow the Antichrist to do his thing. And we're going to look at also how that's already at work. People are deceived. But you've got the truth. Take that gospel home with you. Give it to your friends. Spread it to the world around you. Pray for revival in your own life. Well, I'm not the one that needs it. It's those people over there. Remember what Jesus said about that? If your friend has got a speck in his eye, 
He says, don't, don't go up there with a big old plank sticking out of your eye. I can fix you, don't you worry. And sometimes, isn't it so much easier to point out what's wrong with the world than it is to control your temper? We say, well, they're wrong, and they need to know they're wrong. It's the world. Of course they're wrong. They don't know Jesus. They, they, they will never get it right until they know Jesus. Well, they ought to know. Yeah, they should, but they don't. But you do because you have the Spirit of God. Your job is to take the message to them. If you've got a problem with the, where the country is going, get out there and share the gospel with people. You've got a problem with your family and you're concerned where things are going, get the gospel involved. If you're concerned with that neighbor across the street because you hear them constantly yelling and shouting and she drove off at 2 in the morning way too fast the other night and there's all kinds of crazy, get the gospel over to that place. They want to hear it from me. Well, who else are they going to hear it from? Lord Jesus, preserve us from all those people. No, 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 no. We want to fill this church with those people. Such were some of you, were you not? Where would you be if it weren't for the grace of God? Don't get there all prideful because there's grace in your life. How silly is that? Yeah, well, I was pardoned after all the murders I committed. Like that, that doesn't make you great. That makes you blessed. That's like, well, who pardoned you? That's all I really want to know about. It's the same thing for the world around you. They need that same grace. It's not yours to hold on to and withhold from people. Well, they'll yell at me. Awesome. Bible says if you suffer for the name of Jesus, it must mean you're worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. So, guys, evil is on a leash through the work of God, and I think primarily through us, but we're not always going to have this opportunity. What has God brought us here for? To have nice services? You can go to a million churches in town and have nice services. Amen. It's your job to get out there and get the gospel going and pray for those people that need Jesus because you have the opportunity to bring the light into their life and watch them get transformed. And when we do that a lot, that's what we call revival.